0: as the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. And now it's dark. I teased you recently about the two new podcasts we launched this past week. We hope you have or will check them out. But I've returned to tease you again. Friend of the show, author Michael Whitehouse is soon to launch a new project. It's a podcast called Fear Noir. It's a horror fiction podcast fusing hard-boiled detective stories with a slug of whiskey and a belt of nightmare fuel. Written by Michael and starring a young lad named Peter Joseph Lewis. Hmm, name sounds awfully familiar. Check the show notes for a link to their teaser trailer on YouTube. The launch date for the podcast itself remains a mystery, but we'll do the detective work and let you know as soon as it drops or gets beaten up and shot in a dark city alleyway. Either way, get ready to be immersed in fear noir. And since we know a thing or two about the darkness of fear, I think we should begin our tales. So now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, We join a man as he heads off camping. Like all the best adventures, he doesn't have a destination in mind. What better thrill than to throw yourself upon the mercy of the land and the locals? But in this tale, shared with us by author Megan Hotz, we discover that the locals have a few strange warnings about the nearby area. Performing this tale is Mike Delgadio. So pack up your tent and make sure you have provisions. Don't worry if you don't know where you're going. Someone will direct you to the right place. As long as you can handle the stick men.
1: Stuck in a long stretch between cities in the B.C. interior, I ended up stopping for emergency gas at some podunk non-town that was hardly more than a post office and parking lot. Isolation made it a beautiful little area, and through some small talk with the attendant, I offhandedly asked about camping spots. He chuckled and said, Only if you want the stick men to get you. (laughs) That was the first time I heard about the legend. My travel-addled, caffeine-deprived consciousness didn't really register that as a kind of a weird thing to say until I was well on my way. I didn't even really think about it again, until one night I binge-read one of those seemingly endless Reddit threads about weird experiences and someone mentioned these apparent stickmen again, a kid who worked a summer logging job and was told by his co-workers to avoid a certain patch of forest where the stickmen lived. This started a chain reaction of posts from different users with similar local legends, and at that point I knew I had to give this one a deeper look. Here are three stories that I managed to find through interviewing locals. Now, I trust the character of each person mentioned, and that they're being entirely truthful about what they saw. Or at least, what they think they saw. I've changed the names and significant identifiers in the following accounts to preserve the anonymity of those involved. But the events have not been altered in any way from the way they were originally described. July, 1972. It was the Lowry family's first summer vacation at a small cabin resort in a fairly popular national park. The Lowry family, comprised of Judith Lowry, 35, George Lowry, 38, Meredith Lowry, 10, and a dog named Beans pulled up to the cabin where they intended on staying for the week. The first thing they noticed was the amount of forest debris around the site, logs leaning up against the cabins, sticks strewn in strange little piles, like the work of a particularly pretentious beaver. The family thought it a little odd, but they were city slickers and this was forest charm. The next morning they discovered that all the fell wood had been cleared. They figured that the campsite staff must have been in the process of clearing some dead brush and finished up during the night. They were amazed that the cleanup racket didn't wake them and assumed they must've been sleeping very deeply after their day of travel. A few days passed without incident. Hikes, cookouts, and canoe excursions all went off with the picturesque charm of a postcard. In the middle of the week, the family took a day just to relax around the cabin, low effort, low risk antics. Meredith, an adventurous child as she was, set out on her own to go birdwatching. She was a good girl and knew not to stray too far, ensuring she not only watched the birds, but the cabin too, and of course kept faithful beans by her side. She was stunned by the size and diversity of the forest. There were enormous conifers wider than a horse was long, their plush green canopies dappling the undergrowth with light and shadow. Spindly birch trees brushed between them, swaying in the occasional breeze, their black knots staring out like dozens of eyes. Meredith went from tree to tree, inspecting the markings, knots, and striations in the bark on each one. They were so incredibly unique, as if they were the prints on the forest's many fingers. One tree in particular stood out to her. It was thinner than most of the others, gray and smooth like the driftwood in the lake. Knots churned its surface, tracing out the shapes of three black holes that almost resembled a crude human face, if only by their placement two pitted eyes and a long, gaping mouth. Meredith stood before it for a minute, staring into those holes. She'd heard that woodpeckers made their nests in holes like this. If she looked inside, would she find a baby bird? Or perhaps an angry squirrel protecting its cache of nuts? Or, even the worst possible scenario, angry wasps? Around the time she pondered this, Beans, who had been occupied with a profoundly interesting bush, caught up to Meredith. Immediately his ears swiveled towards the tree, and he adopted that disconcertingly statuesque manner of a dog on edge. He tiptoed forward, grumbling that telltale unsettled. Woof. And Meredith only giggled at him, thinking at first that he was spooked by what was just a tree. Then she became genuinely concerned as she remembered that bears and cougars did indeed live around here, and beans had a nose much better than hers. That was enough to put her in the mind to leave. But she couldn't do it before she took one last look at the tree she had found, to see if she could glimpse even the smallest hint of an animal hidden within. That's when the tree moved to look at beans. The movement was smooth, a gentle sway like the reaction to a bird on a branch. But there was no bird at all, and the movement was not meant to be made. Meredith shrieked and the long figure jolted. She ran back to her family's cabin, followed by the din of furious barking. Judith, who had been reading by the shore, immediately ran to her daughter. Meredith could not properly put into words what she had seen, but with Beans' distant alarm, she knew Meredith had certainly seen something. Beans continued to bark until he suddenly stopped. Meredith and Judith locked themselves in the cabin and fearfully peered through the window, waiting with bated breath. They had barely the time to even begin to process tragedy befalling the beloved beings, or that the same fate may befall them. All they knew now was instinct and horrified curiosity. After endless moments of thunderous silence, a noise rattled in the woods. Something was moving towards them. First with just a rustle, and then with the snaps and crunches of bulldozed undergrowth. From behind the cabin curtain, Judith failed to avert her eyes, and readied herself to witness the bloodied maw of a bear in person. The cacophony made its crescendo, and out of the woods came Beans, proudly carrying a long stick in his mouth. When nothing followed him, and the pup just stood in slight confusion with his tail wagging, the relieved Lowries led him into the cabin. He dropped the stick at their feet, pleased to show off this newfound prize. It was a good stick as far as sticks go, hefty and taupe with that same driftwood texture. But when Judith knelt to clear it from the floor, she noticed something ghastly, something coating the edge of the stick that looked a little too much like blood. She carefully pushed back Bean's lips, initially worried that he'd cut his gums. The pooch hardly reacted to the touch, continuing to pant as only a happy dog does, giving full view of a mouth no worse for wear. No, on second look... The deep red ooze was coming from inside the stick. It was like a bone oozing marrow. As the adrenaline began to ebb, Judith realized it was sap. Thicker and more brilliant in color than any sap she'd ever seen. And the smell was alien. Somewhere between pine and sulfur with a dash of apple mint. Perhaps the tree it came from was diseased. And that was more than enough reason to toss it back from where it came. It took some time for her to get the full story from Meredith. When the frightened girl had originally told her she saw a face in the woods, she thought she'd meant a man beneath the trees, and not that the man and the tree had been one and the same. September 1998. A park ranger named Abigail Williams was out with a team of researchers attempting to retrieve a radio collar that had fallen off a bear. This was a remote area, further complicated by recent storms that had washed out the formerly most reliable trail to the collar's last transmitted position. The detour easily doubled their time on the ground and they quickly realized they would have to camp overnight. It was late afternoon when they resigned to stop and set up camp. And as Abigail gathered firewood, she discovered a grisly grotto. Several sticks loosely covered a small pit that was filled completely with bones and scraps of hide nothing bigger than a beaver from what she saw. But after the strains of the expedition, it was quite the thing to see. There was no scat or other markings to indicate that a predator was still nearby, and the bones were long since picked clean. Still, the night was slept uneasily. Abigail was the first to awaken the next morning, when the sky was still silent and stonewashed. While the others slowly joined her, Abigail began dismantling the camp, ensuring the fire was adequately snuffed and no trash remained. She was just finishing up when she heard a snap from the woods. Everyone awake heard it, and like deer they froze and looked to the sound. Abigail, who was closest to the tree line, was implicitly voted to investigate. She nested herself in the roots of a massive tree, using it as a barricade as she dared to peek around it. Into the dark, she could indeed detect movement in the distance. A squirrel foraging in the coming autumn's first leaf carpet. She sighed in both relief and exasperation. It never hurt to be careful in such wild isolation, but working yourself into a tizzy over a squirrel wasn't a moment to be proud of either. However, as she watched, she realized the sound of rustling continued, even as the squirrel did not too, appeared to be listening. It too had no idea where to look. The cold water sensation of being stalked trickled over Abigail as she re-entered the realm of fight or flight, and at last, she saw it. She later figured that part of the reason she missed the creature was that she was not looking for it, as it is difficult to look for something that you've never seen in your life before. Barely visible in the morning light it might have been overlooked entirely if Abigail had laid her glance elsewhere. At first, she thought she was only witnessing the trees swaying in the breeze. It was humanoid in stance, but that's where the similarities ended, as it was much too long and thin to be anything resembling human, primate, or beyond. It was hunched over on all its stilt-like limbs, its forelimbs the longest of them. Even in that position, it was huge, well over seven feet tall, There were no other distinct features visible in the morning light, and it didn't help that the thing moved almost imperceptibly slow. Just looking at the thing was an arduous task. It was so well camouflaged in the trees that a moment's focus in a different place would cause it to blend into the backdrop in a confusing mess, like before a star becomes fully visible in the falling night. Abigail had forgotten the squirrel as she tried to make sense of the thing before her, but it quickly came back into play as she realized that the squirrel was being stalked by the thing. Every so often, the squirrel stopped to listen to the crack of a twig, but it never ran. Evidently, it had difficulty distinguishing the creature as well. Despite the pursuer's slow movements, it came up on the squirrel as it nonchalantly concerned itself with a pine cone. She almost wanted to yell out to scare the squirrel off, but she didn't. Firstly, she knew that nature does as nature will, and it does nature no good to interfere. She also didn't want to become part of that cycle herself by drawing that thing's attention. There was also a darker little voice influencing her silence, one that desperately wanted to know what would happen next. One moment, the figure was behind the squirrel, standing as still as the trees it resembled. The next, the squirrel twitched, skewered on its forelimb, The figure had no toes or claws, just the sharp ends of its walking stick arms, now streaked with blood. Abigail watched as it calmly lifted its catch to what must have been its face, just a woody plane identical to the rest of its body, except for, as she now saw, the perfect black hole of its mouth into which it fed the squirrel. It didn't chew or make any noise, just tilted its head back and Abigail thought about that squirrel sliding down its hollow throat. Maybe she was too big for the creature to hunt. She didn't care, and the researchers didn't need any more convincing to pack their things and run as swiftly and silently as they could. Abigail remained with the parks for another decade and never saw anything quite like it again. August 2006. The wildfires had spread faster and closer than initially predicted, and a state of emergency was well underway in the evacuated communities. Jake Gimble was on the front line as an experienced firefighter, having lent a hose to many just like it over his long career. It didn't mean the situation was less dire or dangerous, but he had an idea of what to expect by now. It was a harsh few days with little time to spare. The air was soot, and the sky was absent and the fire seemed to move with such determined hatred that it was more like fighting a monster than a blaze. The heat seemed to congeal the world into one solid, heavy mass, but they couldn't let that burden them now. Finally, after grueling days of uncertainty and mounting fear, the winds changed, and a thunderhead burst above them, helping to corral the feral inferno and giving some relief to the ground beneath the ashes. Taking the edge they were offered, the fire crew gave a last united push and the fire became officially contained. The rain took back the earth with a healing vengeance and the men were so desperate to feel it that they dropped their gear where they stood. Enormous drops ran inky trails of soot from their skin and washed tears back into their eyes. Jake climbed to the crest of a hill that overlooked the wasted forest and just stood, taking as many long breaths of cool air as he needed to soothe his lungs. Those sweet breaths caught in his throat when he began to hear the sound. At first, he didn't really know what he was listening to. Winds and gases could always interact in strange ways in the wake of destruction, but this was loud and persistent and strangely organic. Yet it was unlike any animal Jake had ever encountered. Even the poor souls that had been trapped in their dens and nests as they burned Sometimes he fought himself on whether it was really an animal at all, as the sound would swell and bellow like a stormy gale. But the other voices would come, different pitches and patterns, different instruments made of what may be flesh, resonating with an alien timbre yet carrying a primal agony recognizable in the hindbrains of every earth and being. The others heard it too, all rooted to their spot in the hill Some mid-motion, faces upturned. No one had the strength to ask what it was. They all knew that no one had the strength to answer. There were so many voices, and they sounded like voices that weren't meant to be used, voices straining on what were barely vocal cords. They screeched for the better part of an hour, and when one voice died out, three more would chime in. The sounds came on the winds from the heart of the fire, but nothing changed within its hellscape. There was only ever that sound. The crew did not resume their post until the screeches went silent to the patter of rain. Within 48 hours, the fire had been snuffed through the combined efforts of the firefighters and nature herself. At the end of it all, Jake strode through the fire's last fortress, smothering everything that still glowed and smoldered. The clearing reeked horribly. Thick with an undetermined smell that flipped Jake's stomach. It was like burning sewage and rubbing alcohol. And it was all around him, stewing in his respirator. He tried to ignore it as he went about his duties, but soon just yearned for the familiar smell of incinerated wood. As he doused a burning log, he noticed that it was splayed out in a way that uncannily resembled a man. The body and limbs were too thin and too long, but the general shape was striking. Jake just chuckled at first. Nature always seemed to warp itself into familiar images. It doing so in strange and amusing ways could even help you cope with the grueling work, the human mind striving for something recognizable among the strange. Then he found another, one more crispy, long humanoid log, and then another, and another, all slightly variant in length and width, but still consistent in structure they were all prostrate, blanketing the same acre of land. By then Jake was fully charged with anxiety, both in what he saw and the idea that it wasn't what he saw. That the exhaustion had cracked him and normal matrixing became hallucination. He risked nudging one of the figures with his boot just to feel something real beneath him. It crumbled away like any other charred log. But when it did, It gasped out a cloud of that awful smell. Jake instinctively recoiled, but he could not flee. Was this thing toxic? Could it have contributed to the fire? Trying to suppress his flinches, he knelt in for a closer look. Beneath the blackened bark carapace, he noticed something strange. Not the familiar texture of wood, but shriveled gray webbing, like it had been something spongy before the ravaging heat. Jake didn't know why, but he felt in that moment that he had intruded on something private, carelessly but deliberately looking at something he was not meant to see. The feeling overwhelmed him as much as the smell, and he left, fixing his eyes on the station and refusing to look elsewhere until he had safely arrived. The others understood that he needed a rest and some water. It had been a rough battle and he wasn't getting any younger, and there was plenty of help for the cleanup duties. A new kid was sent to finish up in the sector while Jake tried his best to think of anywhere but there. When the younger man eventually returned, Jake saw a new bit of hardness in his eye, the beginnings of the process that turned a rookie's bright young eyes into weathered stone. He had seen what Jake had seen, and they both knew it. They never said anything about it. They knew they wouldn't get an answer, and it wasn't worth having the others thinking your brain had finally boiled away. They were lifted out of the area by helicopter. It was only from the air that Jake could truly see the scope of what the fire had left behind. Acres of forest that would remain gray and lifeless for years. Land that could not host livestock or bear crops. But that was nature. The part of nature he'd always known. Now it was marked in a new black. Limbs fallen in near runic shapes. Patterns of organized nonsense that almost resembled something familiar. Jake watched that land until it was over the horizon, blinking only when he had to, the entire while silently crying out to whatever God could comfort him. There weren't just a handful of misshapen corpses, an anomaly isolated to a single acre. There were hundreds, and they twisted together, interlocking with the fallen forest, until all was just a distant blur of ash and soot. Those are the three most verifiable of many, many stories of the stickmen. What they are, where they came from, nobody knows. We also don't know if they're friend or foe. So next time you're alone in the woods, keep a sharp eye out for mountain lions and bears, of course. But when you feel that tingle in the back of your neck and every nerve knows you're being watched, sometimes it's best to ignore the forest for a closer eye on the trees.
0: When you're out in the woods, it's important to try making the trip a good experience for everyone. Keep calm, stay happy, remain enthusiastic, even if things start going south. But in this tale, shared with us by author B.A. Reese, it's important to tell whether things are going south, north, east, or west when the map can't be found. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Ellie Hirschman, And Jeff Clement. So stick with your family. Shake off your past and look to the future. At least if you want to be a better sibling.
2: We had been searching for three hours when Sean finally figured it out. I'm not sure if it was our hushed tone or our hesitation at the trail intersections we came across that gave it away. Are we lost? I shuddered at his worried voice. This weekend was supposed to be an opportunity for me to bond with my younger brother, and he had began the overnight hike with such excitement and exuberance. Now we were deep in the woods, far into our phone's no-coverage zone, and my father and I had to break the bad news. Bad news for which I was responsible, Dad crouched to Sean's height.
3: Yes, I didn't want to get you worried, kiddo, because I've been in these woods before and I thought I could find a way out of them. But I'm afraid your sister and I don't really know where we are.
2: Sean's eyes grew wide. He was, after all, still at an age where he viewed as infallible his father and his much older sister... The ten-year age gap had made me almost a replacement for our long-absent mother. Now, I feared that my mistake had shattered this image.
3: But it's okay, son. We packed for an overnight trip, and we'll be fine. If we still can't find any of the main trails, I have an idea that I'm sure will bring us to safety. We'll be back at home tomorrow night, just like we planned.
2: But what about the map? Sean looked up at me. I felt the color drain from my face. I...
3: I... Your sister seems to have lost our map.
2: Dad shot me a stern glance.
3: But it's okay, it's okay. You don't need to worry, okay? We'll figure this out together, as a family.
2: I don't know how it happened. Dad had put me in charge of the map when we had parked at the edge of the rich mountain hiking trail that morning. Everything had gone so smoothly at first. I led us down a half-mile dirt path that, like the rest of the Appalachian woods that stretched through Southwest Virginia, was lined on both sides with the vibrant colors of early fall leaves that decorated oak, maple, and birch trees. We arrived at the swimming hole at the base of a long cascade, a, a common stop for families looking for an easy outing, and proceeded to spend time playing in the water and then picnicking with food we had packed. After we had dried off and changed back into our hiking clothes, we began the much longer trek to a prominent deep woods campsite where we planned to spend a night before returning home the next day. The coolness of the morning air faded into a strong midday sun. Dad and I sweated under the weight of the two tents and camping equipment we lugged on our backs, but the trail was mostly flat and we quickly got used to the burden. Dad directed us at first. We split from the prominent trail onto a smaller, less well-maintained dirt path and then onto another, even narrower one filled with rugged, small rocks. It was barely a path as is from any distance, it was hard to distinguish from the surrounding woods. After a few hours of this, Dad commented that the territory we were going through looked unfamiliar to him, so we'd better take a look at the map. We took a rest in a clearing. While Sean was climbing up a large stump, proclaiming it a throne upon which he sat as king of the woods, I fished through my items I was carrying to find the map. My dad stood over me, patiently, then noted the worried expression on my face.
3: You alright there?
2: It's, uh... It's not here. I made sure to whisper, not wanting to worry my brother unnecessarily. Surely it would turn up before long. But it didn't. My dad and I looked through our respective backpacks and even Sean's small knapsack. The map was nowhere to be found.
3: When was the last time you saw it?
2: I responded that it had been at the swimming hole right as we were packing up our belongings again. We exchanged a concerned glance.
3: Don't worry. We'll figure this out.
2: That was six hours ago. We tried, of course, going back the way we came. My father had always had a good sense of direction, so we followed his lead through several windy paths. Occasionally, I would feel like I recognized our surroundings, only to second-guess myself. Was that the same set of spruce trees we had passed before, or a different one? It got dark only a few hours after Sean caught on. Dad, I'm so sorry. I felt the pain of all the times I had disappointed him run through me. Even worse was realizing that I was letting down my kid brother. I asked him about his other idea. He took out his compass and explained that we had generally been heading southeast all morning and early afternoon. All we needed to do was go the opposite direction, northwest, and before long we'd be close to where we started. At the very least, we'd come across a few peaks from which we'd be able to see the surrounding valleys and figure out our location. We trudged along this way for another hour before evening started to fall. The only sounds were those of the woods, insects buzzing around and gentle breezes swaying branches. Realizing we only had a little natural light left, we kept our eyes out for a place to camp for the night, eventually identifying a patch of dirt largely unobstructed by trees or roots. Dad and I set up the two tents, one for Sean and me and one for him, and lined a space with rocks where we started a small fire with wood we had gathered nearby. Dad exchanged pleasant words with us, telling we would be back at home this time tomorrow night as we cooked and ate the food we had packed for dinner. Eventually, Sean and I retired to our tent. Sean was worried, but also exhausted from the day of intense hiking, and before long I heard the rhythmic breathing of him in deep sleep. I, on the other hand, tossed and turned with discontent. Today's events triggered other painful memories. I remembered sifting through Mom's wallet back when she and my dad's marriage had descended to the point of regular, violent physical confrontations, and using what I stole to procure the pills I craved. Pills that brought me a much-needed sense of contentment. The look of disappointment Dad had given me earlier today had been the same as when he caught me taking more money, this time from my own brother's funds for a field trip to feed my addiction. Now I wanted so badly to be a better sister, but here I was again letting him down unable to sleep i emerged from the tent and returned to the fire it was dying out with only a few embers emitting light and in this half darkness i could see my father sitting there leaning against his heavy backpack and whittling a stick with his hunting knife
3: can't sleep
2: i shook my head
3: i understand don't be too hard on yourself i'm proud of you honey
2: I must have continued looking downcast because he continued trying to cheer me up and even apologized for his many work-related weekend absences from home. We sat together quietly, staring into the fire for a few moments before he got to his feet.
3: I'm gonna see if I can get some rest for tomorrow. You should do the same when you're ready. Just make sure to put out the fire when you go.
2: With that, he entered his tent and left me alone. I sat for a minute, observing how the woods seemed ominous and foreboding at night. Glancing at the opening of Dad's backpack, I glimpsed the lid of a prescription box in a flicker of light from the dying fire. In other circumstances, I would have left it alone as my youth rehab program had taught me. But I was so distraught at the dire situation in which I had placed my family that I guiltily reached for it, hoping to find something that could improve my mood. I didn't imagine that the box would contain the painkillers I craved for, but maybe it would have something that could help me relax." I held the label in front of my eyes. Allergy pills. I sighed, disappointed in the contents and in myself, and reached into Dad's backpack to return the container. My hand felt a thick, folded piece of paper. My heart sank as I realized what it was. I quickly pulled it out of the backpack. It was the map. The same one I had used to guide us to the swimming hole this morning. The guide to the entire region of woods in which we had found ourselves lost. My mind ran in circles. Sean and I had spent the last 10 hours distressed at our situation, and Dad had had the map on him all along. I felt dizzy thinking of all the implications. Had Dad taken the map out of my backpack when I wasn't paying attention and then pretended not to find it when I realized it was missing? I recalled a point where I had been in the water with Sean while Dad prepared our picnic. He would have had a perfect opportunity to remove it then, but why would he do that? Dad had also been the one to assure us we didn't need to check the map for the first several miles, stopping me from noting its absence until we were already deep into the forest. What was going on? Where was Dad leading us, and why was he tricking us into thinking we were lost? I thought about using the map to run away. With a compass, which I also found in Dad's pack, I could surely return to the main trail and call for help, but could I leave Sean? Would he come with me voluntarily without waking up Dad? I grew angry, too, at all the blame Dad had allowed me to assign to myself. That bastard. He had watched me descend into guilt-ridden sadness, while all along, he was the one leading Sean and I astray. Was my dad secretly some kind of crazed killer? Was he going to sacrifice us to a forest monster, or try to start a new life with us as survivalists in the woods? What was happening? I turned on my cell phone, which, predictably, had no signal, and used its flashlight feature to find and pick up Dad's knife, and also to find our location on the map. I noticed a ranger station listed a bit north of us and decided to set off there and get help. Hopefully, I would find someone tonight who would return here and help figure out what was going on. And hopefully, we would get back before Dad realized I was gone. I sat silently for a bit, trying to discern if Dad was asleep. I had a nightmarish image of him rushing out of his tent to find me in possession of the map, and I could only imagine what would happen next... For now, Dad didn't realize that I was onto him, and that gave me some advantage in trying to thwart whatever he was trying to accomplish. Moving as quietly as I could, I set out into the woods. The initially flat route developed gradually into a steep ascent. I quickened my pace as I got further away from our makeshift campsite. Beyond every crooked set of branches, I saw a visage of my dad in the shadows, a man I had thought I could trust. In the distance, I heard the faint sound of running water mixed with hoots from owls and mating calls from insects. My legs began to ache as I continued up the hill, but adrenaline pushed me forward. Finally, as the perfect darkness of midnight settled around me, I reached the peak of the mountain and saw the outline of a dilapidated shack before me. I walked slowly up to the entrance, my mind somehow more nervous than before. I was a young woman alone in the woods, after all. What what if I found inside was worse than my crazed father? Hesitantly, I knocked quietly at the rusted door, then louder when I heard no response. Finally, I pushed at the door. It creaked open, apparently unlocked. At first, I saw nothing inside but darkness. The floors were wooden, the ceiling was low, and the room before me appeared barren. Using my phone's flashlight once more, I made out a long, oval-shaped mirror at the other end. Stepping closer, I gazed into the reflection of my own distraught form. My thin frame shook with worry. My long, disheveled chestnut hair at least somewhat obscured my panicked and sweaty face. In the reflection, I began to notice something floating over my left shoulder. I froze, too afraid to turn around and see it directly. A translucent, wispy shape appeared behind me. For a moment, I saw its murky texture swirl together to form a barren face that consisted only of eyes and a nose. Then an impossibly large mouth grew into it, and the entity let out an inhuman moan. I panicked at this, stumbling into the corner of the room and tripping over an old piece of carpet. I felt myself fall to the ground, and then threw the floor onto the dirt below. I drew Dad's knife and held it out towards the gap above me, prepared to swipe at anything I saw, but nothing came. So I looked around and examined my surroundings. What I found there shocked me even more than the shape that had appeared a moment earlier. I found myself surrounded on all sides by bones. Human bones hundreds of them. I felt like I was about to pass out from the stench and from the horror coursing through my body, but even what I had seen so far did nothing to prepare me for what I was about to witness. There was one body that consisted of more than bones. It was still lined with decomposing flesh and and it smelled the worst of all. I dropped the knife and vomited immediately after my phone's light gave me a better look at it. It was my dad. His head and torso lay a few feet away from me and I saw a leg about a yard away. The dirt underneath was stained auburn red. I at last heard footsteps creeping close to the hole in the floor where I had dropped down. Frantically, I shined my phone's light around the room, noticing a small gap in the wall. Crawling as fast as I could over the remains that littered the area underneath the floor of the shack, I slid through the hole and found myself back outside. I took a brief moment to get my bearings, and then I sprinted down the hill as fast as I could, heading in the direction of the campsite and never looking back. When I was close to the bottom of the hill, long out of sight of the building, I finally stopped. I hadn't realized how out of breath the journey up and down that hill had made me. Panting, I sat down against the back of a tree and noticed the first glimmers of morning light appearing on the horizon. I went through it all in my mind. The mirror, the shape that formed behind me, the the area between the floor and the dirt, not really a basement and, and more like a crawl space, littered with human bones in my dad's decomposing body. Of course... If that was my dad, then who was leading Sean and I into the woods? This person who had shown such love and affection towards us, this couldn't be our real dad. Our real father was dead and had been for some time, judging by the body I'd seen, and this imposter had taken his place. Our real dad would never pretend to be lost like this, much less falsely place the blame on me for it. But how was any of this possible? I didn't have any time to grieve, I knew at that moment that I had to stop the man in the campsite from achieving his goal. I don't know what that goal was, but I knew it involved Sean and me. I crept slowly back to where we had set up our tents. It was still early in the morning, and hopefully both my dad and Sean had not noticed my absence. Dad's tent was shut and looked no different from when I had left it. I returned the map and compass to Dad's backpack and threw water on the last few embers of the fire, which I had forgetfully left burning in my earlier panic. I carefully unzipped the door to my tent and crawled inside of it. Thankfully, Sean was still asleep. Quietly, I pulled a towel from my backpack and wiped off sweat from all over my body. If the thing pretending to be dad came along, I wanted it to think I had been asleep in the tent, not running through the woods at night. I laid down on my pillow and tried to think of a plan of some way to lead my brother and me out of this nightmare. Quickly, I decided the best thing to do was to wake up Sean tell him some story to convince him to follow me, and take him to the woods with me as far away from Dad's impostors as we could get. I could use the compass and map to find our way back to civilization. From there, I could convince the authorities to check out the abandoned ranger station in the woods. Upon finding the bodies, they'd know I was telling the truth. It wasn't a great plan, but it, it was all I could come up with. No sooner had I resolved on this course of action than I heard footsteps approaching the tent. I braced myself, not sure what was outside. A moment later, the thing that was pretending to be my father shouted,
3: Good morning, kids. Rise and shine. Sorry to wake you so soon, but we need to get an early start if we're going to find our way out of here. Sean stirred as I realized that I had missed
2: my chance. Within a half hour, we had eaten a light breakfast and packed up our belongings. Sean and... it... Both noticed my unease, and both assured me that I didn't need to beat myself up for losing the map.
3: We'll figure this out soon.
2: Dad patted me on the back. He was being so unusually kind and sincere that I nearly bought into the act.
3: After a couple of miles hiking in the direction of the road, I guarantee we'll find our way back to the main trail.
2: The forest looks so much more welcoming in the daylight, and and my father is being supportive. He optimistically insisted that we'd find our way back in no time and that our trip would end up being the same overnight camping experience it would have been had nothing gone wrong. Sean even returned to his more typical jovial mood. That's when I started second-guessing myself. I was a recovering addict, after all. What if I had hallucinated the events from the night before as some kind of withdrawal syndrome? I'd never heard of that happening to a pill-popper like me. But then I thought about how I was lying in the tent... Right where I had tried to go to sleep only a few hours earlier when Dad had called for us to get up. Had I simply awoken from a vivid dream? As we began hiking up a steeper incline, Sean and I both struggling to keep up with Dad, a terrible image ran through my mind of me running off with Sean when, in fact, nothing was wrong. And me pointlessly putting him in more danger in the process.
3: You okay, Laura? You don't seem yourself.
2: I'm fine, Dad. I looked over him carefully, trying to find some discrepancy that could validate my imposter theory, but he perfectly resembled the same dad I had known and depended on for 17 years. He shrugged and moved on. We climbed higher and higher. Sean, unburdened by any heavy camping gear, was just able to keep up, but I felt so tired. Tired enough to feel like I had been out moving all of last night, not sleeping soundly as I was beginning to hope. Then we reached the summit. All around us on either side were green valleys surrounded by thick forest. Then ahead and by a steep cliffside was a building. Was this man an imposter, taking us to that horrible place so that our bodies would be added to the many underneath it? Or was this a different place entirely? The building before us now had a second floor, which I hadn't seen in the structure I visited last night, but it also conveyed a sense of familiarity that sent a deep chill down my spine. Maybe there's someone inside. I walked to the rocky cliffside. There was water running down it.
3: Laura, come on. We need to check this place out. It looks like a ranger station. If anyone is here, they can help us.
2: He was at the building's entrance, Sean at his side. I didn't budge.
3: Wait here, Sean.
2: The stream below formed a waterfall, a, a cascade. At the bottom of the steep decline, I saw the shallow swimming pool where we had started the previous day. We were less than a mile from where we had parked, and if this man was really my father, he would have noticed and said that. It was entirely possible that I had been this close to the road last night and just didn't realize it. I had, after all, had plenty to distract me from carefully examining the map.
3: Laura, you need to come over to us.
2: He was right behind me now. I felt his hand grab me and nudge me in the direction of the building.
3: We need to see if there's anyone here who can help us. We can admire the view later.
2: I resisted and continued to stare at the water below. He stepped in front of me, smiling and waving his hand around.
3: You okay, honey? You seem like you're in some kind of trance.
2: Do you have your knife? I said suddenly, remembering that I had dropped it in the building the night before. If my dad didn't have it, then what I experienced had to be real. What? If you have it, show it to me.
3: Well... (laughs) I don't remember where it is.
2: I know where you keep it. My dad shot me a concerned look, something that seemed of a different character than before.
3: And where is that?
2: In your backpack, with the map you said I lost. Dad's expression shifted.
3: (sighs) Honey, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any map. You had the only one.
2: You said we were far away from where we started. My dad's eyes now cast an insidious glare. I looked down there, don't you recognize it? Dad turned and looked down at the precipice.
3: Oh, it's nothing. There are all sorts of waterfalls in these woods. It's not the same one at all.
2: He never finished the sentence. Seeing my chance, I slammed all my body weight into his back. Before he knew what was happening, he was flying off the edge and through the air. Adrenaline again pumped through my whole body as I realized what I had done. I watched as he skidded off the side of the cliff before landing on a rocky alcove hundreds of feet below. Goes without saying that his body didn't move again. I stepped back slowly. What have I done? What if I was wrong? Every thought in my mind now turned to Sean. I looked to see him backing away from me, understandably horrified. There were tears in his eyes. I tried to approach him sean it's okay it's it's not what it looks like it, it wasn't really dad you have to believe me sean now backed into the door of the building which nudged open behind him a form stood inside encased in a layer of shadow was it a park ranger was i crazy did i just kill my father and traumatize my brother for life over nothing the figure stepped forward reaching out for my brother emerging from the darkness i recognized the figure It was me. The other me grabbed Sean's shoulder and pulled. Ah! I ran to the door as fast as I could. The amorphous face from last night? That had been me. A new me, forming just like Dad's replacement must have months ago. And it had come into existence immediately after I looked into that mirror. Sean bit into the hand of the other me, causing her to loosen her grip and stumble backwards into the building. Wait out here. I sprinted by him, unsure if he would listen. I darted forward and dove at the other me, knocking us both to the ground. The other me had my same circular face and green eyes, but she lacked the fright, stress, and horror that I remember seeing in the mirror the previous night. I tried to grab her hands to restrain her, but she slammed her head into mine and knocked me onto the brittle floor, where I lay, stunned, near the hole I had formed last night. Remembering the knife I had left, I rolled close to the hole and reached down to find it. Looking for this? Turning, I saw her charge at me, knife in hand. Incredible pain rang through my body as she jabbed the knife into the left side of my stomach. I looked down and saw blood gushing out and spilling down my shirt. I collapsed, dizzy. The other me bent down and positioned her face directly in front of mine. This could have been so much easier. All you had to do was let your dad lead you here like one of us led him. And we would have had you both erased and replaced in no time. The process takes very little effort to work on subjects weakened by a long journey. "'Screw you!' I struggled to get loose but was thwarted by the pain shaking through me. I reached out with my right arm into the hole in the floor. "'Why resist?' The other may withdrew the knife to my immense agony and prepared to stab me again. "'I know who you are, and I'm better. Doesn't your brother deserve a better sister?' My right hand felt a strong, circular object. Just as the other me began her next strike with the knife, I slammed a human skull from below into her face with all the strength left in me. The other me collapsed backwards, blood gushing down her forehead. Ugh, you bitch. The long, oval-shaped mirror stood to her side. This a better work. With the remaining might I could muster, I threw the skull at the mirror, which shattered into small fragments of glass on contact. In the blink of an eye, the other me was gone. She didn't burn up, explode, or disintegrate. She... Just wasn't there anymore. A calm filled the air, and I felt a moment of relief before I remembered the sharp pain coursing through me. I started to walk to the door, but the dizziness overtook me, and I collapsed once again. I inched my way forward, leaving a trail of blood behind me until I made it outside. Sean? I felt him embrace me a moment later, somehow surmising that I was not a murderer. I whispered into his ear to take a path down to the waterhole below, to follow the trail there to the road and to get help. I remember waiting and pushing my hand onto the wound as I felt more and more life drain out of me. I remember wondering what it was that came through the mirror and how many more mirrors like this one were out there, providing the ability for beings from somewhere else to enter our world. When the mirror broke, did other people, other replacements suddenly vanish like my doppelganger? And was the spirit inhabiting the other me waiting on the other side for another chance? As I lie now on the ground, my eyes steadily drifting shut, I hear the distant sound of a helicopter and realize that I have a better brother than I deserve.
0: The last place you want to get a flat tire is the middle of nowhere. Flat tires aren't great at the best of times, but when you have no idea where you are, they're extra annoying. Still, at least you have a spare. But in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, lingering around to change the wheel isn't the best course of action. Performing this tale is Matthew Bradford. So keep an eye on the lights deep in the woods. Try to be sure you're certain of what you're observing. Out here, appearances can be deceptive, and you might not see the forest through the sea's
4: It was a really awful time to get a flat tire for one it was past midnight i had been coming home from a party thrown by a co-worker that lived on the other side of town and for two i had decided to take the back roads because i hated driving on the freeway my own unwillingness to face my fears had brought me there there weren't even any street lights nearby i hadn't seen one for about five minutes when i heard the pop and the release of air Only the dim moon provided light now. I was as far away from a mechanic as you can get. I pushed pencils at an office. The most technical thing I knew how to do was open an electrical box. Still, I had read about changing a tire somewhere a long time ago. I had a vague inkling of how to do it, but not much more than that. The trees on the other side of the road rustled in the breeze. I quickened my pace. I had seen too many horror movies. In my haste, the jack slipped out of my hand while I was taking it out of the trunk. It fell down the steep embankment next to the ground. Groaning, I carefully went after it, trying to hold one hand on the weeds to help me down. I almost slipped and tumbled a few times, but managed to regain my footing. The slope was about eight feet down. Pulling out my phone, I scanned the flashlight around, looking for the missing part. The beam glinted off something lying in the grass. I squinted. It certainly wasn't the jack. It was made of metal. Bending down, I picked it up and brought the light to it. It was a fish skeleton, but it wasn't in pieces. It looked like something you would see sticking out of a garbage can in an old cartoon. What was this doing on the side of the road? Had someone dumped their trash and left? I became aware of how silent it was. The breeze had died down while I was busy with the tire. I looked up, studying the trees carefully. They were moving, to be sure, but something seemed off. They drifted lazily side to side, so slowly it was almost unpredictable. There was something very fluid to their movements, almost as if they were submerged in water. Beyond the first wall of pines, I noticed a dark shape floating above the trees. It was high off the ground, slipping smoothly between the trunks. I thought it might have been a large bird, but the movement was too slippery. I didn't know how quite to describe it. There was an inherent wrongness to it, this lithe-flowing motion among the harsh straight lines of the trunks and branches. As it approached, I realized I didn't want to stick around and find out what it was. I turned my back to the thing and frantically combed the grass for the jack. Half a panic minute later, I found it half-buried in a bed of pine needles. Scooping it into my hands, I whirled around to check if the shape was still there. I almost dropped the jack when I saw it. Three yards off the ground, peeking out between two trees, was a massive golden fish. It appeared to be at least ten feet long and four to five feet wide. Its black, vacant eyes bore into my own. Slipping, I landed on my back in the grass, staring up at it. Then, with one quick flick of its tail, it turned and swam away into the trees again, floating gracefully between the trunks as if it was underwater and not in the middle of the Pacific Northwest wilderness. A thickness seemed to jump into the air out of nowhere, a pressurized, nauseating feeling that wrapped me in its sickly embrace. I stumbled to my feet and furtively pawed at the grass, trying to get a handhold so I could climb back up the embankment and get out of there. Suddenly, a light erupted behind me, casting my shadow onto the plants. I made one last jump to try and grab a hanging weed near the road but slipped again and tumbled down the few feet I had climbed. I landed roughly at the bottom of the embankment and barely had time to recover before I perceived the sight before me. There was an orb of white luminescence floating near the edge of the tree line, bobbing up and down slightly. It was almost blindingly bright. I had to put my hands up in front of my face after a few seconds of looking at it. It hung in the air for a moment, as if it was studying me. Then with no warning, it began receding into the trees. It floated lively between the trunks, much in the same way that the fish had earlier. I inexplicably found myself getting to my feet and slowly walking forward, following it. It was as if I didn't have control of my body anymore. My mind swayed with a feeling in the air as I stumbled dreamily forward, passing the first tree and taking my first step inside the forest. I dropped the jack just as I crossed the tree line, but barely registered I had done so. The light was about ten feet in front of me and slowly getting further away. I picked up my pace, graduating from a clumsy stumble to a jerky amble. From somewhere below me came squelching noises. I looked down and saw the forest floor was muddy, staining my shoes and the cuffs of my pants. Branches and pine needles and leaves and small fish bones were caught in the muck. Some of the items crunched under my feet. I paid little heed as I continued. I saw the golden fish again floating high above my head a few hundred feet away. Its scales glimmered in the moonlight that managed to find its way through the canopy. The deeper I got into the forest, the more fish appeared. Scales of every imaginable color adorn the strange creatures as they slipped through the air above me, opening and closing their mouths rhythmically. The pressure in the air increased to a painful level, and the squelching had progressed to frequent splashes. There was no mud below now, only water, about a foot deep, and went to my ankles. The light continued up ahead, although I was gaining on it. Then, a more concrete shape caught my attention. I saw a wooden rowboat, covered in algae and moss, beached on a rock outcropping. The boards looked spongy and old. One of the oars was still bolted to the side, cracked and about to break apart. I slipped on something below the surface, falling to my knees. The water nearly came up to my chin. My clothes were soaked and the cloud covering my mind had only amplified. I could now think of nothing but the light, and reaching its warm embrace. The fish appeared to be getting closer to the water now. They dipped lower with each passing minute, almost swarming towards the rapidly deepening pool before coming back up. A circle of them materialized, rotating in a loose sphere above me as I slogged forward through the water. Up ahead, the light had ceased moving. It floated above the surface, a beacon in an otherwise lightless sea. The forest floor had disappeared long ago. I was now all but swimming towards it, hands outstretched. A sharp pain erupted on the back of my head, and I felt something wet running down my neck. Turning around for just a moment, I saw a small trail of crimson drifting through the water. With a shaking hand, I reached up. There was a sticky spot on the back of my head. Pulling my hand away, I saw it was stained red. I let it wash away in the water as I looked up. The golden fish was circling above me, a patch of blood dripping from around its mouth. It opened its mouth wide and dove towards me much quicker than I had anticipated. Crying out, I swam right only to feel another sharp pain, this time on my arm. I had barely enough time to see an emerald green fish dive down before swimming back up, taking a piece of my arm with it. They were swarming now, circling above me like vultures above a dying animal. One after another, they dove down, slipping between the trees like ghosts. Moments later, they would swim back up with a piece of my bloody flesh caught in their mouths. Up ahead, the light suddenly plunged deep into the water. Feeling another bite attack my neck, I saw it illuminate the depths as it dove down. Hundreds, no, thousands, of picked clean human bodies were sunken below. Some of them were caught in the branches of the submerged trees, others tangled in the roots. Most were little more than grinning skeletons, bits of cloth and hair still sticking to them. Deep beneath that horrific scene, there was another great rumbling sound. The fish dove again, a few of them attacking at once. I felt the water churn around me and barely had enough time to swim out of the way before something came up. A set of massive jaws rushed out of the depths, coming closer above the surface, at least 10 feet high. The slimy thick skin of whatever creature lurked below rose up as the jagged spires of teeth clacked together in one empty bite. It reverberated off the trees, echoing into the sky above and the water below. With a loud splash, like a whale breaching, it disappeared back from where it came. The other fish had stopped for a moment, and I heard my blood dripping from their mouths and pattering hollowly against the moonlit surface of the water. Something in my mind broke, a clarity returning to tell me how wrong this all was. Turning back, I began swimming quickly in the direction I had come from. The fish came out of their temporary stupor, hungrier than ever much less graceful now. Some of them began running into the trees as they pursued me, cracking branches and sending some of them tumbling into the water with mighty splashes. Bites rained down on my flesh, leaving gaping holes in their wake. The water behind me was a trail of red scarlet billowing out as I went. The pressure in my head began to build into an intense headache just as I felt my foot touch solid ground again. I tried to cry out in relief but only managed a hoarse whisper. I flailed, splashing around in my desperate attempt to push myself forward. The surface was just reaching waist level when it slowly began to rise again. I weakly tried to bat away another fish as it bore down on me. Open wounds covered my upper torso, stinging in this salty water. I felt the ground leave my feet again just as I caught sight of my car. Somehow, impossibly, the water was rising in a straight line up ahead as if there was an invisible wall separating the road and the woods beyond. I barely had enough time to gasp in a full breath before I went under. The water was scraping the fish's bellies now and rising fast. Propelling myself forward, I swam, ignoring every bite and snap that came from the things above me. At last, I reached the edge of the road. Pulling my hands out, my fingers skimmed the wall of water. Something invisible stopped them. I kicked at it with all my might. Through the watery haze that covered my eyes, I could see my car, sitting there pathetically with its flat tire like a wounded animal. My lungs began screaming for air. I beat and kicked against the invisible wall. The tide overtook the treetops and continued rising into the night. I thought wildly about the moon being submerged and almost opened my mouth to laugh. I turned back around. The fish were circling above me shadowy and grotesque. They began to slow, their circuit decreasing in speed until it appeared that they were just floating. Their glassy eyes stared at me for what must have been a few seconds but felt like an eternity. Suddenly, as if a switch had been flipped, they came to life and began swimming rapidly towards me, their mouths hung open, eyes staring blankly ahead. I involuntarily opened my mouth to scream. Water filled my lungs and burned down my throat. The fish continued their spiral towards me. I felt myself drifting away, eyes clouding over and becoming misty. And suddenly, from somewhere below me, a large dark shape came torpedoing out of the gloom. I recognized the spongy skin immediately. The light floated feebly above it as it bore down on my pursuers. I didn't see all of it as it swam out of the darkness below, but I knew somehow it had to continue for miles down there. The fish tried to swim out of the way, but the jaws snapped shut on a large number of them before they could. Some were chopped in half by the sharp teeth, their thick blood and oily black that only served to make the water darker. The halves that weren't swallowed sank like stones to the abyss below, and the ones that escaped the bite flitted away between the sunken trees in a panicked rush, disappearing among the branches. A great rumble erupted from the depths. The water bubbled and boiled around me throwing me around as I tried to regain my sense of direction the creature that had swallowed the fish turned to face me the black blood still drifted out from its mouth pieces of bone and flesh stuck between the teeth I could have sworn I saw the corner of its lips upturn for just a moment before it took off spiraling back down into the gloom with a flick of its tail the light disappeared soon after like it had never been there at all Then, with a sudden explosion of noise, the pressure vanished. I was pulled down by the cascading wall of water as it bore down on the road. I tried to scream but could only manage a hoarse croak. I closed my eyes, bracing for the impact on the ground below. I landed roughly, but not painfully, on the asphalt. The water flowed around me as it descended, settling down on the road and trees and everything else in the area. It was silent for a moment. Then the wind suddenly came back to life. The branches whistled in the breeze, and some forest sounds returned. Moonlight shone down on the dry landscape, completely devoid of moisture of any kind. My car still sat on the road where I had left it. I ran to the driver's side mirror and inspected myself. Cuts and welts littered my body, dripping blood onto the road below. I felt something welling up in my stomach and heaved, expelling a large amount of salty water. The pressure returned to my head again and I swayed, collapsing against the rear door. Before I slipped into unconsciousness, I thought I heard a low, keening wail, like a whale's call. Some hours later, I woke up in the same position. The sun was just rising over the tops of trees. I got to my feet with a groan. Stumbling against the car, I spotted the jack lying right beside my car, almost as if it had been placed there by a careful hand. A cloud came over my vision again. I moved automatically, picking up the tool from where it lay and changed the tire like I had known how to do it all my life. I entered my car and started the engine. It whined for a moment before turning over. The welts on my body stung and my skin felt dry. Right before I drove off, though, I looked back towards the trees. There was something moving on the forest floor, just beyond the embankment. It was just the wind picking up some debris and nothing more. It wasn't a fin moving among the leaves. It wasn't. <laughs>
0: Going on vacation with friends can be a blast, especially when there's a beauty spot you all want to see. It's great to have a shared goal, a joint destination. But in this tale, shared with us by author Daniel Salvatore, it turns out that you can't have a group expedition when you've lost the group. Performing this tale are David Alt, Jesse Cornett, and Atticus Jackson. So keep a close eye on your friends. Be wary of mysterious strangers offering help. Although it never hurts to take a helping hand, does it? At least not when you're teetering on the edge of a precipice.
5: I'm always paranoid about putting out the fire before we go to sleep. There's a drought on and the leaves are drier than an Episcopalian wedding ceremony. Jack tells me I'm being paranoid and I'm an asshole. You're being paranoid, asshole. I suggest the possibility that his mother is an asshole and throw a rock at him for emphasis. Okay, let's put it out now. If anything outside our pit catches, even if we're awake, there's no stopping this whole forest from going up anyway, right? I'm paranoid, but I don't like being cold more than I can help being paranoid. I agree to keep the fire going through the night, but low. Wiles is opposite us passed out and has been since almost as soon as we broke to camp for the night. We told him he was packing too heavy for our weekend trek, but Wiles is Wiles and often makes his bed and sleeps in it this particular bed being the hard ground. Jack and I stay up being chatty Cathy's for a bit, but we don't last long either. I make sure the fire burns down to a low crackle before letting sleep take me. Despite likely having slept on several rocks, I slept like one. The sun is just making its way above the horizon, but it feels like the forest is still sleeping when it should be alive with birds chattering and my small camp up and about. I rub the glue and crust from my eyes before I struggle out of my bag. Looks like Jack and Wiles are up early. Sleeping bags are gone, and so it seems are they. Pranksters. I slept in my clothes except for my boots, so I get them on before the search for my dummy friends commences, but... First, I need to piss. I'm doing so, and the woods are still bizarrely quiet when I hear leaves crunching under feet approaching from behind me. Yeah, where'd you guys get off to so early? The footsteps cease in response. I crane a look over my shoulder, my stream slows to a trickle, and I give a small thanks my dick is attached, because otherwise I'd have dropped it. There's a man behind me, and he's not Jack or Wiles. I quickly tuck in and zip back up before turning around to face him. He's tall and wiry without being outright skinny, and if I was a better judge of men's appearance, I'd say some would consider him handsome. His boots and trousers look to be leather and handmade. His shirt is loose and has open cross-lacing at the neck, through which I can make out a crude tattoo that might be a bull. His hair is long, and I wonder for a moment if he might be in a band or homeless. Hello... The voice has some scratch to it, but it doesn't grate me. Morning. One brings you out here, child? Child? The fuck is this guy? Uh, well... Just now I had to piss. And, well, um... Hiking? Heard there was a really great view out here if you go off trail a bit. <laughs> yes. I know the place. We're very close, actually. Were you aware? I tell him that I am aware, yes, and that this morning we'd be setting out to enjoy the view and spend the day there. Wiles had wanted pictures. Well, assuming my idiot friends ever make it back here. Your friends? Yeah, I woke up. I mean, I just woke up, actually, and uh, they're gone. Perhaps they've gotten a start without you. Yeah, I really don't think so. They can be dicks, but this was my trip and they wouldn't do that to me. Besides, they left their packs and their sleeping bags are gone, so I'm sure they're just pranking me. I'm not sure, though. And this guy, he's closer to me now. I, I don't notice as we're talking and I'm looking around and clearing sleep from my brain, but now he's uncomfortably close and I can smell him. It's strange. It's not un, not unpleasant, but he he smells off. I don't know, like a... like a big dog, maybe? Hey, bud, you're, you're a bit close, huh? Oh, I'm making you uncomfortable. He doesn't ask, but he takes a step back. I'll help you find your friends. That's alright, I guess, but I think I'll hang around here for a while. I'll square up the camp and wait. No sense going off and getting lost without him. And then I'll stay with you. And if they don't return, I'm sure I can help you find them. He looks very eager. I start packing up. There's not a whole lot to do, but he just... stands off to the side and watches. Kind of feels like he's looking through me. I risk turning the awkward silence into an awkward conversation. What are you doing out here? We're off trail by three miles. I live here. And that's fucking weird. Really? Uh, You just live out here off the land? More or less. I've received kindness from
6: passers-by. none unlike yourself. I prefer
5: relative solitude for now. That's nice, if it works for you. You build a place out here or something? What kind of a shelter do you have? He smiles. I have these woods. And for now, I have you. I'm zipping up my pack as he says the last part, and I pause to take out my knife. It's a single blade, flipper action. I stand sideways clipping it to my belt and hoping he doesn't notice. Bag is packed, fire pit is filled in, and hopefully I don't have to stab this fucking guy. An hour goes by, maybe less. Actually, it's bizarrely hard to tell right now. The sun usually gives a good indication, but I swear the sky is twice as bright as it should be. The sun is obscured by a strange, cloudy glow. Dare I say this is outright fucking concerning. Hey, mate, this, um... you know, What the hell is going on with the sky? It's too early to be this bright. A thought occurs. Fuck, is there a, a fire nearby? He looks thoughtful. I believe there is... But quite far. I smell no smoke. He's right, too. I can't smell any smoke. The air looks hazy, though, and can I hear the faintest crackling? Okay, well, I don't want to get caught out here if it gets any closer. I think I'll try and find my friends now. Yes,
6: and I will help. Perhaps they've headed to the lookout. I know
5: where it is. You will follow. Hard to turn down a serious offer. I gesture for him to lead. I know the lookout isn't far. I'd gone over the map with Jack and Wiles yesterday. And my new buddy who says I can call him Malcolm is heading the right way and we should be there soon. I'll know if he's fucking with me. We're walking in silence except for dead leaves beneath us and that goddamn crackling isn't just something I'm imagining. It's getting louder and the sky is definitely getting brighter. I'm hoping we catch up to Jack and Wiles soon. What an absolute shit thing for them to have done. I'm having trouble believing that they would have just left me sleeping, but the alternatives are absolutely maddening to think about. Is creepy old Malcolm creepy in a meaningful way? I never seriously considered stabbing someone as a real possibility in my life before now. As we walk on, my trepidation feels engorged and suddenly it appears not without just cause two empty sleeping bags come into view before us the trees aren't very dense where we've been walking though we're off trail but the leaves cover the forest floor like they said fuck it and jumped off their branches in a mass suicide they've been cleared in a line several feet beyond both bags like maybe someone was dragged out like maybe jack and wiles were dragged out what the fuck? I look at Malcolm, who is smiling with an intensity Perhaps they are not far from us Yeah, perhaps they're fucking not, but how the fuck did they get here? Jesus I look closer at the bags, Jax is light blue, and it's hard to miss the splash of blood on it It's not much, but it is also too much Malcolm, what the fuck happened? He continues smiling and suggests we press on
6: We're very
5: close Christ, I do not want to stab anyone today. We're going uphill now and coupled with my nerves, steep enough to get me breathing heavy. We start to rise above the trees and the view opens up. This has to be the lookout. The sky is still a bright and burning haze, but I can now see the valley below us dense with trees of autumn-looking foliage and a wide river cutting right through the center. But I can also see horror. Jack and Wiles, bloodied faces, naked to the waist, arms tied behind them around trees. I sprint for Wiles, he's closer, but reacting out of panic doesn't lend itself towards situational awareness and I don't see what hits me across the fucking face. I feel it though, and the next thing I do see is two men standing over me as I lay on my back, neither of them Malcolm or my friends. They're dragging me up now, I'm dizzy and my head throbs as I blink blood from my eyes. I'm tied now, arms restrained around a slender tree. Jack and Wiles are just in front. Jack? Wiles? They look like they've been beaten badly, both heads slumped forwards, chins to chest. Malcolm steps in front of me. I don't think they can hear you, child. But it won't matter for long. He steps back. The two men are carrying over a large pot which looks to be clay, tapered at the top. They're dressed like Malcolm and look just as lean, but one has a beard. They set the pot in front of Jack. His head hangs over the lip of it. The one with the beard grabs a fistful of Jack's hair and wrenches his head back. Stop! I'm struggling against my ties, but all I can seem to do is cut my wrists against the restraints. Jack seems to gain a little bit from shock, but he's trying to look around, but he's too out of it. Malcolm walks over to Jack and bends down to whisper something. I can almost make it out. Is he thanking him? It doesn't matter. They they cut his throat. Just like that. <laughs> I, I haven't witnessed anything so truly horrible in my life, and I doubt I'll live long enough to see anything worse. Oh, wait. There's still Wiles. Wiles. Oh, they're bringing the pot over to him now. I think I'm yelling to him that I'm sorry. I don't know. Maybe later someone will tell me what happened after we've been rescued, after I've had time to process what the fuck is happening. But I don't think so. I'm getting frantic, and that is a great way to become non-functional. The element of control has left the table. Was it ever there? And does it matter? Wait though my knife is still clipped to my belt maybe I can spring it and cut the ties please god you divine bastard please fucking help me <laughs> it's too far around my belt to reach but if I, if I lean up on the tree I can pop it off and shimmy to pick it up off the ground I'm not looking but I can hear what they're doing to Wiles the upward pressure on the knife clip against the tree forces it loose it lands softly to my left I, I'm low enough to the ground to reach it easily just need to flick it open and get to work Wiles is dead. I need a little more time, but his coppery breath very close to my face now. It is not my
6: desire that you need to die to serve me, but I need you to help me grow strong again. Your blood and the blood of your friends will give me strength. We hold you with great reverence, child. You will not live on this earth as you were, but
5: you will be within me forever. Yeah? I summon what I pray won't be the last bit of courage in this life. I hope you fucking choke on it. No reaction, but he continues. This is not likely what you'd imagined. But what's important
6: is that you wanted to come here."
5: He can see my hands from where he stands, and looks down to the knife I've been trying so hard to conceal. Jack and Wiles have left me. Hope leaves me now. I've felt hopeless before, but not like this. It's gone. Never coming back. See ya, pal! <laughs> he takes it easily, opens it, and examines the blade. There's a cold pressure on my neck. You've been so accommodating. A smile stretches across Malcolm's face and he throws his head back laughing so hard tears run down his cheeks. I can't hear him. My ears are ringing with a sharp cry of adrenaline and disbelief as I look beyond him to the viewpoint I had journeyed to with my friends. To take in a beautiful day in nature, appreciating the small time we are privileged to spend in it. It's obvious what is happening now. The burning brightness that had been so strange and diffused becomes clear. There is no distant forest fire, nor are there trees aflame nearby. The sky itself is burning.
0: In our final tale, we find ourselves inducted into a very special club, a horror lover's club. And what does any self-respecting group of horror lovers do? Well, they go seeking out horror. And in this tale, shared with us by author D.R. Lemon, our merry band of travelers find themselves discovering more horror than they could have ever hoped for. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, jessica mcavoy alexis bristow dan zapula and sarah thomas so if you're after some real life horror thrills then make sure you go somewhere with a shady past because it's a thrill to find out why people disappear in alabaster state park
7: Finally! just need to stretch for a minute.
8: Huh. Kylie, something wrong? Huh? Oh, no. Um, I mean, I guess I just expected the campground to be more... I don't know. More something. Yeah, it's a little underwhelming, I must admit.
7: Is this even actually a campsite?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a campsite, just covered in leaves. Hey, there, see the fire ring?
7: Yeah, if we're staying here, we're going to need to get this cleaned up before dark. Would have had more time except somebody's too good for Taco Bell and drove an hour out of our way to go to a real restaurant.
2: Shut up, Jake. Taco Bell's fucking
8: gross. You take that back! Guys hate to break up the love fest but seriously we're going to need to set up our stuff
9: sometimes i questioned my sanity melinda jake kylie and i had been driving for 7 hours to a defunct state park in northern michigan we were on a camping trip but not exactly the normal kind where you sit by a fire in a beautiful park and roast marshmallows don't get me wrong camping was a big part of it but We were at an abandoned park for a reason. My friends and I were students at Michigan State University and organized this trip as part of a student group on campus, the Michigan State University Horror Lovers Club. It was, as the name suggests, a group for horror enthusiasts. We watched scary movies, read horror books, went to haunted houses and corn mazes, that sort of thing. Most of our activities involved sitting in the dark, drinking cheap liquor, and watching old horror movies. At some point, someone circulated a list on the group's Facebook page. The top 100 scariest places in the United States. We checked it out to see what was close, thinking we could organize a trip. Shockingly, the only one in Michigan was a place none of us had ever heard of. Alabaster State Park. It was a little park in a part of Michigan that Melinda politely called the ass end of Nowhere. Apparently, the state set it up back in the 60s, when taxes from a booming auto industry meant fat budgets. The park never got very popular, though, and when the budget crunch came, the state shut it down. We organized a trip right away. Initially, there was a lot of interest, but only the four of us wound up being able to make it. We borrowed ancient camping equipment from our parents, piled into Melinda's Jeep on a Friday morning, mid-April. Each of us printed off at least two scary stories about the park that we found on blogs and websites to read in the car and psych ourselves up for the trip. It was pretty standard stuff. Ghost sightings, animals behaving strangely, that kind of thing. According to the internet, 17 people had disappeared here since the late 80s. A few of those had been when the park was operational, but even then the rangers hadn't found any bodies.
6: Ugh,
9: this is gross.
2: Aw, can't handle some leaves.
9: They're
7: all wet and nasty. How are we supposed to sleep here?
2: (laughs) Well, you sure aren't sleeping in my Jeep, so unless you're walking back to a hotel.
9: It took us a while, but we got our tents set up around dusk. In the meantime, dark clouds rolled in and the temperature dropped. It wasn't a good time of the year for camping. In Michigan, particularly northern Michigan... Mid-April is still early spring, and it was just a bit above freezing. And if that wasn't enough, we'd also picked a particularly bad weekend. The forecast called for a big rainstorm tonight. As far as I could tell, we were the only occupants of the defunct park, probably because we were the only people crazy enough to be out there. But if we'd waited any longer, we'd get into exam season, and we'd all be too busy to make the trip. Besides, the solitude lent a horror movie vibe to the whole thing, which suited us just fine. We devised a two part plan for keeping warm. The first part involved a campfire after Melinda cleared the fire pit of debris. The second involved an open bottle of fireball whiskey and some shot glasses. Bottom up. Bottom's up!
2: Oh god, <clears throat> that burns.
9: Not used to it? It goes down easier after about, uh, the fourth one. Actually, each one gets successively easier. True.
2: Yuck. I'll pass for now.
9: Your loss.
7: Well, you guys want to go look around?
8: It's getting kinda dark.
2: Aw, you spooked. Ghosts gonna get you. Come on, let's just walk around the old campground. We won't explore the trails and stuff until tomorrow.
9: And just like that, the four of us set off. The last vestiges of daylight were fading fast, but for now, it was still light enough to see. The wind was picking up, driven by the approaching rainstorm. I
8: have to admit, this place does feel a little creepy.
9: Nobody else said anything, but we were all thinking the same thing. This far north, the trees were still mostly bare, even this late into the season. The way their skeletal forms twisted and bent in the wind created an eerie effect. Kind of like... It kind of reminds me of a Tim Burton film.
2: Oh, yeah. It totally does. Weird.
9: We were walking on a strip of asphalt road toward the back of the campground. The road might have once been flat, but decades of neglect left it buckled and pitted. We had to go slowly or we would trip. We also had to watch out for all the trash. It was everywhere. Apparently we weren't the only ones who had ever had the bright idea to come up here, and with no one in charge of cleaning up, the years of drunken parties and illicit camping had left their mark. I stepped around the tattered remnants of a paper McDonald's cup, only to feel the crunch of glass under my shoe. Someone had shattered a beer bottle across the road.
7: I think we should turn back, maybe. It feels like it'll start raining soon.
2: What, are you afraid all your shit's gonna get wet?
7: It's not shit, it's equipment. It helps detect
9: any paranormal activity. To be honest, Jake, I think you're just ashamed to admit you got swindled out of a hundred bucks.
2: Seriously?
7: Why did you guys even come up here if you don't believe in the paranormal?
2: There's a big difference between liking a scary adrenaline rush and actually believing that you can detect ghosts with a expecto petrometer or whatever. An expecto-what? I'm pretty sure that's a Harry Potter thing. Nah, it's totally legit. And I'll sell you one for a hundred bucks. It detects ghosts, I swear.
7: (laughs) This is an EMF reader. It's a real thing. Professionals use it. Plus, I've got an infrared light, and there's this new app on my phone that I've been wanting to try and- Like
9: I said, most people were just a part of the horror lovers club because they like to get drunk and watch scary movies. But there were a few that were legitimately into the paranormal. Jake was one.
7: And I guess ghosts can't stand the noise or something, because when they hear it, they start to reveal themselves.
2: Sure, they do. Sorry I asked.
7: Here, watch. I'll turn on the EMF reader. It'll beep if there's an electromagnetic field nearby. Do you have your phone on you?
2: No, idiot. We've been driving with no signal for over an hour. Right. Let's get the flashlights out, though. It's getting dark, so that's one piece of equipment that will actually do something.
8: Oh, man, look! What? Check it out! It's the old ranger station or something. Oh.
9: We were shining our lights on an old, dilapidated building through the trees. One corner of the roof had collapsed, and the windows were boarded up. Graffiti covered every conceivable surface. Looking at it, a chill went down my spine. To be honest, the feeling wasn't entirely unwelcome. I joined the Horror Lover's Club for a reason, and this was the familiar feeling of a good haunted house or a top-notch horror movie.
8: You guys wanna... check it out?
9: At that moment, we collectively realized that we had stopped walking. I glanced around to read my friend's expressions, but the light was too dim.
7: I don't know. Maybe we should come back in the daytime.
2: Hey, if you want to be a pussy, you can head right on back to the campsite.
7: Oh, come on. It'll still be there when we wake up.
2: Yeah, but what's the fun in that? Isn't a spooky woods adventure the whole point of this trip?
7: I mean, yeah, but like, paranormal spooky, not get murdered by a heroin addict spooky.
2: Jake, I'm going. Like I said, you can feel free to stay here if you want.
7: Fuck no. Let's
9: split up, gang, is how people start getting murdered. Come on, Jake. You've watched one too many made-for-TV horror movies. It's just an old building. To be honest, I wasn't feeling nearly as confident as I sounded. I had half a mind to agree with Jake. Why couldn't we just come back in the daytime? What if there really was something dangerous inside? As we got closer to the rundown building, we could make out individual pieces of graffiti. Mostly, it was the usual stuff. Gang tags, people's names, initials with hearts around them, and plenty of anatomically incorrect depictions of male genitalia. The building's wooden porch was covered in about an inch of rotting leaves. The remains of two Adirondack chairs still sat where they once had, drunken revelers having taken hammers to them a long time ago. My mind summoned an image of the place in its heyday. A beautiful cabin-like structure with a park ranger relaxing in a chair on his break. I wondered what the rangers would have thought if they could see this place now. A haven for drunken high school parties and weirdos like us.
8: Mark, you okay?
9: What? Yeah, sorry. Melinda had already climbed the front porch. From the light of her flashlight, we could see that the door was completely off its hinges.
2: Come on, guys. Nothing to be scared of. The inside's mostly bare. Looks like people have stolen pretty much everything.
9: And they had. If the outside of the building was sad, the inside was even sadder. There were skeletons of old filing cabinets, long devoid of all their drawers. The floor was covered in all kinds of refuse. Broken bottles, plastic bags, food wrappers. It was hard to even walk without stepping in it.
8: Oh my god, is that a used condom?
7: (laughs) Gross. Guys? Check this
9: out. Jake pointed his light at one of the interior walls. Aside from the usual spat of graffiti, someone had taken a black sharpie to the wall in all capital letters. The thing in the woods is real. The legends are true. It killed Michael Rosen. Three, five, oh, five. Do not stay here after dark, or it will come for you, too. Below that, someone else had carved into the wood the words, "'Oh yeah, come for me, baby.'"
2: "'Michael Rosen, isn't he—'
7: "'He's a hiker who went missing here. "'This was one of the stories Kylie read in the car.'"
8: "'Yeah, he went missing right around that time. "'Was never found.'"
7: "'Creepy.'"
8: "'What does it mean, the thing in the woods? "'Is that some kind of urban legend?'
7: Yeah, I read about it on one of the blogs. It's supposed to be some kind of shadowy figure that stalks people at night. It has a name, like the Jersey Devil or the Chupacabra, but I I don't remember what it is. There are some people who claim to have taken pictures of it, but much like Bigfoot, the thing in the woods suffers from a bad case of the blurries.
9: Well, I don't see any ghosts in here, just a lot of gross trash. Should we get going?
2: No way. I want to look around some more.
9: All right. Let's be quick, though. I'm getting tired. I wasn't really getting tired, to be honest. The graffiti had creeped me out a little. Besides, I could hear a soft rain starting to fall on the roof, and I wanted to get back to the tents before the raining started in earnest.
2: You guys want to look in the bathrooms?
7: What? Seriously? No, thanks. It's gross enough out here.
8: I'll
9: go. Kylie and Melinda went to explore the bathrooms, while Jake and I continued to scan the graffiti on the walls in the main room. Aside from the one creepy message, there was nothing too odd about any of it, but it was fun to look at. Jake and I made nervous small talk while we waited for Melinda and Kylie to get bored. Apparently, John
7: Kulmer has a small dick. It says so right here. And to think, I could have gone my whole life without knowing anything about the size of John Colmer's dick. Makes me really glad we came here. (laughs) Right? Hey, uh, is your electro
9: thingy getting any pickup?
7: No, 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 you would have heard it beeping. But that doesn't necessarily mean there are no paranormal beings here. Not all of them can be detected with an EMF reader. Why not? Well, nobody really knows, but the theory...
8: Guys! I think you should see this.
7: What is it? (laughs) <laughs> Here I sit, broken-hearted, tried to Shut
8: up, Jake. I'm serious.
9: Jake's laughter died in his throat with the urgency of Kylie's voice. We walked together to the bathroom, careful to step around all the trash on the floor. Jake had been right. The bathrooms were even more disgusting than the rest of the building. And they stank. Like an outhouse, but even worse. Melinda stood inside the girls' room, looking concerned.
7: Melinda, you okay? Look at this.
9: Melinda pointed her light at the wall about waist height, showing us something written there in black Sharpie. The handwriting looked like a child's. It said, "My name is Anna Gonzalez. I am lost and need help. If anyone sees this, I will leave today, go out to the hard road, and go to the right. Please help." Underneath, there was a date.
7: What the fuck? Is that today? Yes. Is, isn't? It, wouldn't we have seen police or something?
2: Who knows? Maybe there is an Amber alert.
7: No way, do you think that's real?
2: How else would that have gotten there, Jake? Come on. With today's date?
7: Maybe someone wrote a random date under there, hoping that I, I don't know, hoping that people like us would find it and freak out.
8: Oh shit.
9: We looked at Kylie, then followed her gaze to the floor below the graffiti. There among all the trash was a Sharpie with no cap. We were all silent while Melinda reached down slowly and picked it up.
2: Can I get a light?
9: Jake shined his light on Melinda's hands. She slid the tip of her Sharpie across her palm. It left a line there, black and smooth. Holy shit. Holy shit. Stay calm, Jake.
2: We've got to get help.
9: The cops are probably looking for her right now. Maybe we should call and- Mark,
2: we're an hour from anywhere with a signal. The temperature's supposed to drop into the low 30s tonight. She'll freeze to death by the time emergency crews get out here.
9: So, what do we do?
2: Go look for her, obviously. She told us where she was going.
7: What are we going to do, just
2: drive around aimlessly and hope she's stuck to the road? Well, she's smart enough to let us know where she's going, she's smart enough to stick to the road. Please, let's just go get the cops. Jake, I've got the keys to the only car we've got out here, so we're going after her. And that's that.
8: I agree. We've got to go look.
9: The rain was falling steadily and the clouds completely obscured the moon and stars. The darkness was oppressive now, like someone had turned off the lights in a windowless room.
8: I can't believe that a little girl is walking around in this.
2: That's why we have to go find her. If she's really out there, she could get seriously hurt. I'm just hoping we find her before she gets hypothermia. I'm hoping we
9: find her before we get hypothermia. Seriously. can't believe we decided to go camping this weekend.
8: Well, it's a good thing we did. There's no one else here. If it wasn't for us, Anna wouldn't have anyone coming to look for her. True. Guys, hurry up.
9: Melinda, we're going as fast as we can. We can't help Anna if one of us breaks our leg on the way to the car.
8: What was that?
2: Tree got pushed over by the wind.
9: You think? It's not that windy.
2: Ice, then, maybe?
9: Not that cold, either.
2: What else could it be? Sounded like a tree
8: falling, right? That one sounded closer. Okay, that is weird.
2: We're almost back to the car, though, so we'll be out of here soon. You see the campfire?
9: How could we not? It's darker than the inside of a cow out here. (laughs) Darker than a what now? It's a saying. It most certainly is not. Ha ha. My grandma used to say...
2: Guys, how about let's fucking go before one of those trees falls
8: on us? There's no way that's the wind. What is doing that?
7: hell if I know, but it still sounds pretty far off.
9: Our flashlight beams bounced off the road as we walked. I was so focused on not tripping over the sticks and debris on the ground that I almost ran face-first into Melinda's Jeep. All
2: right, everybody, climb in.
9: I was riding in the back with Kylie. Jake was shotgun, and Melinda was driving. We were all a little wet from the rain, and the car's vents were blasting cold air for now. We were all shivering.
8: Which way did she say she went? Uh, Out to the blacktop and to the right. Thanks. This doesn't make any sense. How did a little girl even get out here?
9: Hiking with her family, maybe?
8: I guess. You'd think that we'd have heard about it if a little girl was missing here.
9: Maybe. We didn't have the radio on, though, so maybe not.
8: There's just nothing here. Not for miles in any direction. Your best bet for shelter is an illegal hunting cabin. Who brings their kids out to a place like this?
7: The same kind of lunatics who live here, probably.
8: Watch it. I grew up not too far from here.
7: I rest my case.
8: Asshole. You should probably drive slowly. She could be in a ditch or something. Wouldn't want to miss her. I can't drive too fast anyway, it's really hard to see. Yeah, no kidding.
9: Well, at least the car's starting to warm up.
2: Yeah, that's good and bad though. Good because my hands are getting less numb. Bad because the windows are starting to fog up and... I already can't fucking see anything.
9: After a while, we fell silent. Lost in our own thoughts. I stared out the window. At first looking for any signs of Anna, but I'm ashamed to admit that after a few minutes my mind started to drift. The window was fogged up anyway, and it was so dark there was no way I'd see her. It was slow going. The park's neglected roads had gigantic potholes that made the jeep bounce and rock. Jake eventually broke the silence.
7: Wow, did we pick a hell of a weekend to go camping or what?
2: Yeah, maybe not our brightest idea.
7: Our tents are going to be underwater by the time we...
9: At that moment, Melinda slammed on the brakes. I looked at the windshield to see a young girl standing in the middle of the road. None of us jumped out of the car right away. Even from that distance, the girl looked... Off, somehow. Her skin was pallid white, like the color of spoiled milk. And the rain had pasted her black hair to her scalp. Her clothes hung in tatters. She squinted at the Jeep's headlights, which must have been blinding after walking alone in the dark for so long. In that car, I am confident that the four of us were all thinking the same thing. She looks like the girl from The Ring. Even though we hesitated for longer than I care to admit, the girl didn't walk toward the Jeep. She just stood there, staring at us, maybe unable to believe that anyone had actually come to her rescue. Kylie snapped out of the trance first. She opened her door and ran to the little girl. Melinda followed close behind.
8: Are you okay? Oh my gosh, sweetie, it's so cold out here. Come into the car where it's warm.
9: The girl still hadn't moved. She hadn't even acknowledged our presence. She just stared blankly ahead at the light of the jeep.
8: It's okay. We're not going to hurt you. We'll get you someplace safe and
9: warm, okay? No response. Kylie waited a few more moments, then grabbed the girl's hand and gave it a tug. That seemed to jolt her out of the trance. The girl, who I assumed was Anna, allowed herself to be pulled along toward the car, but still hadn't looked up or acknowledged her saviors. Kylie opened the door for Anna, and I could swear I saw something move in the darkness beyond strained my eyes, trying to see what it was, but it was too dark. I thought Kylie might have to lift Anna into the Jeep, because she had been borderline catatonic until this point. But to my surprise, Anna quickly clambered up and sat beside me.
8: There. we'll set. Melinda, do you know where the nearest hospital is? No idea. Maybe Traverse City?
7: Traverse City's two hours from here. There might be one in Grayling.
2: Good call. That's closer. At minimum, we'll be able to contact the police there.
7: Maybe let's just pick a direction and drive until one of us has cell reception?
2: All right. I'm going to go generally south, towards civilization for the most part. That sounds good to me.
7: Get on the highway and haul ass.
9: The back seat of the Jeep was cramped, which meant that the right side of my body touched Anna's left side. It was not at all a pleasant experience. Her clothes were soaked through, and my clothes were becoming soaked by proximity. Not to mention the fact that she was ice cold. I expected her to start shivering at some point. Hypothermia would explain the catatonic state she was in, but she never did. She just sat there, staring blankly ahead. I would put her age at no more than ten or eleven. I tried my best not to stare, but her appearance was even more unsettling up close than it was from far away. Luckily, it was hard to see her in the dark of the jeep's interior. The part that got to me most was the smell. It was difficult to describe. It reminded me of wandering through a bog or something. Earthy, but in a bad way. Like the smell of a well full of bad water. I'll never forget the way it permeated my nose. It was pungent, like hot mustard or wasabi.
8: Melinda, can you crank up the heat in here? Poor girl's freezing. Jake, would you mind? I can't see shit out there, so I've got to concentrate.
7: Yeah, no problem. Do you know where we are?
8: More or less. Anna? Is that your name, sweetie?
9: Anna didn't respond. She just stared blankly ahead.
8: It's okay. You can talk to us. We're nice, I promise.
9: Anna sniffed. It was the only response Kylie got. Anna reached up as if to wipe the snot from her face, but then set her hand back down as if she thought better of it. I could feel her cold, bony elbow press into my side. The clothes on the right side of my body were drenched already, as was the cloth seat.
8: We're going to get you someplace safe, sweetie, okay? Get you back to your parents. We're so glad we found you okay. No.
9: Anna's voice was quiet, and she sounded like she was on the verge of tears. We were all so stunned to hear her speak that it was a few moments before anyone processed what she said.
8: What? Know what, sweetie? No, you don't want to go back to your parents?
9: Anna shook her head slowly. She spoke so softly we could hardly hear her.
8: You shouldn't be glad. What are you talking about, sweetie? Of course we're glad. You would have frozen to death out there.
9: Anna just shook her head again. The hairs on my neck started to stand up, despite the heat in the car. There was something wrong about all of this. The car slowed and stopped.
2: Guys? What
7: the hell? Isn't this the way we just came from?
9: I looked away from Anna long enough to peer over the driver's seat. A gigantic tree had fallen lengthwise across the road, completely blocking our path. We were all silent for a moment, just staring at it in disbelief.
8: Can you get
2: around it? I don't think so. There's no room on either side.
8: Well, we can turn around, right? It'll take longer, but yeah. Eventually we'll get to another highway.
9: Let's do that then.
2: Not much choice, I guess.
9: Melinda put the Jeep in reverse, made a three point turn, and began driving in the other direction.
8: That's really weird, right? Like, we just came from that way. The tree wasn't there before.
7: Really weird.
2: that weird it's a storm guys trees fall over in storms sometimes
7: that was a really big tree so and the storm isn't that powerful
2: so maybe the tree was dead come on jake what else could have done it
9: (laughs) anna sobbed then just a singular burst then she was quiet again she seemed to be drying out even if she wasn't warming up The air inside the jeep was now so warm that I started to sweat a little, but Anna was still freezing. My feeling of dread persisted. The excitement, the thrill of watching a good horror movie had faded completely. This wasn't fun anymore. Something was seriously wrong here. I was afraid, really afraid. I felt a sudden urge to break the silence left by Anna's sob. So, do we have a new plan? What?
7: Where are we going? I think the plan's the same as it was before. Drive consistently in literally any direction until we hit a lake or somebody gets cell reception. We can't be that far. Besides, Anna's warm and out of the rain now.
8: Do we have a map in the car? I don't know. Do we, Jake?
7: How should I know? It's your car.
2: I don't know. I kind of figured that since you bought a metric ton of worthless crap, you might also have packed away a few
8: useful items.
7: My crap isn't useless. It's...
9: Everyone in the car, except maybe Anna, jumped a mile. Melinda was wild-eyed and looked around for the source of the noise.
2: What the hell was that?
9: Jake fished around in his lap and pulled out his EMF reader. He stared at it apprehensively, as though afraid it was going to bite him. It didn't bite him, but Melinda smacked his arm.
2: Shut that fucking thing off! But- Shut. It. Off.
9: Okay, okay.
7: Shut it off! I'm trying!
9: We all stared open-mouthed in disbelief. Another tree was laying across the road, completely blocking our way. Nobody spoke for a while.
7: Did we go in a circle?
2: No, it's a different tree.
9: Are you sure?
2: Yes, look, this one's a pine. The other was an oak or something.
8: Melinda? Was there anywhere we could turn off between here and the other tree? Not that I saw. Are you sure? Maybe we should check.
7: There aren't. There wouldn't be.
8: What? What do you mean?
7: Because then, the trap wouldn't work.
0: What?
8: What? He's right.
9: This was a trap come on. What would anyone have to gain by trapping us here?" Even as I spoke those words, the realization that they were right, that someone had trapped us here, hit me like a sledgehammer in the chest. Panic began to rise in my throat.
8: What are we going to do?
9: Melinda swiveled to look at Anna. Anna didn't look back. She just kept staring ahead.
8: Melinda? What are you doing? Think about it.
2: If it was a trap...
7: Then she's the bait.
9: Melinda didn't respond. She just nodded gravely and continued to stare at Anna. Kylie shook her head violently.
8: No, guys, come on. We're in a shitty spot, but let's not blame the girl. Anna? What's out there?
9: Anna didn't respond. My heart hammered in my chest. I could feel myself sweating in the heat of the car. The space felt confining and horrible.
2: Anna, what's going on? Is someone hurting you?
9: Anna still didn't respond. Everyone just sat looking at each other for a long time. I stared out the window. The rain continued to beat against it, and the darkness outside seemed somehow ominous, pressing, like being in a basement when the power fails. What are we gonna do?
8: I don't know.
9: It looks like
7: maybe this one doesn't go all the way to the tree line. Could you go around?
2: I don't know if there's enough space.
7: Well, we have to try. We're a hundred miles from nowhere with no food.
8: Yeah. Might as well give it a shot, Melinda.
9: Melinda backed up the jeep, then pointed it toward the shoulder. Where there was a narrow line of darkness between the tree line and the last branches of the fallen tree everyone was silent and tense as she put the jeep in drive we felt a bump as the jeep's tires left the roadway and moved onto the grass melinda went slowly toward the gap as we got closer i realized that it was bigger than i had thought the jeep might actually fit i glanced at anna who still stared catatonically ahead the jeep moved into the gap i could actually see the road on the other side when it happened Melinda hit the gas. The car shook as the wheels spun in the mud. No traction. We were stuck. Oh, you've got to be fucking kidding. Hold on. Melinda put the car in reverse and revved the engine again. We didn't go anywhere, but the jeep rocked backwards. She put the car in drive again and slammed on the gas. The jeep lurched, and I had a fleeting moment of hope. But then it sank even deeper into the mud. Shit.
2: Well, gang, any volunteers to get out and push?
9: We all looked at each other. The interior was lit only by the lights on the dashboard. Everyone looked horrible, eyes wide and faces pale.
8: Um...
2: Okay, how about this? Kylie, I think you're the smallest... You come sit in the driver's seat and the rest of us will get out and push, okay? Okay.
7: What are we going to do with Anna?
8: I think she'll be okay. Will you be okay, Anna?
9: Anna didn't say anything. She just stared ahead, like always. Kylie shrugged. I was struggling to keep the panic down, which is odd because I wasn't even sure what I was panicking about.
2: Okay, everybody out on three. Ready? One, two, three.
9: The rain was pouring down harder than before. My feet splashed into a pool of water about three inches deep, and my tennis shoes soaked through instantly. I turned toward the rear of the Jeep, using the red running lights as my guide in the pitch darkness.
2: It shouldn't take more than a couple of good pushes, but we all have to go at once.
9: In a few short steps, I was even with the running lights, but instead of turning to push the car, I stopped. Melinda bumped into my back.
2: Mark, what's wrong?
9: I put my hand above my eyes and squinted against the rain. I had seen the outline of something move in the red glow of the running lights. Something big. It was just a black blur, but I had seen it. It wasn't my imagination.
2: Mark, come on, let's go
6: taking
7: you guys so long. Come
9: on! Jake was facing the back of the car already, head bent low and hands pressed against the frame. What happened is a blur in my memory. The events all running together and seeming to happen at once. I heard footsteps in the water. Too fast to be Jake or Melinda, and coming from the wrong direction. From the woods. A black shadow moving impossibly fast, slammed headlong into Jake. His body hit the back of the jeep with a sickening crunch, hard enough to lift the entire back end of the jeep into the air and rotate it about ten degrees. I didn't get a good look at what hit him. It was dark outside, and the thing seemed shadowy somehow, like it was partially made of smoke. I could see its outline, though, which was enough to know that it wasn't natural. It was built more or less like a man, except it was taller than any man had a right to be, and its arms were gangly, almost dragging across the ground as it moved. My mind replayed the message I had seen written in graffiti on the wall of the ranger station. The thing in the woods was real. Jake? I'm not sure if it was bravery or stupidity, but Melinda ran past me as the thing descended on Jake's body. Somehow... I don't know how, but somehow I knew that Jake was already dead. He had died immediately when he hit the car. Melinda ran and kicked at the creature, screaming at it. I stood transfixed. Everything my brain was telling me to move, run, get out of there, but all I managed to do was stumble backward and fall on my ass in the mud. You're off. Melinda jumped onto the creature, apparently trying to wrestle it off of Jake. The thing was moving, but the way it moved didn't seem right. My brain had trouble registering it because it was so weird. It didn't turn so much as it just shifted, blending with shadows and emerging in a different position. It seemed at once incorporeal and as solid as iron. I watched in horror as it rose off of Jake's body, stretching about ten feet tall. Melinda slid off its back, crashing into the muddy ground below. Everything was still for a moment. The creature seemed to consider Melinda, who was dazed from her fall. Melinda turned and struggled to her feet, slipping in the mud as she tried to get away. The creature delayed just long enough for her to stand up before it moved. It descended, hitting Melinda's back with a crunch of snapping bone. She sprawled forward with the creature on top of her its dark, twisting form obscuring hers. My eyes fell on Jake, or what was left of him. The impact with the jeep left his body bent at a disturbing angle, his neck apparently broken. Bloody chunks were missing from his flesh, and his left leg had been torn clean off his body. It lay a few feet away, having been mostly devoured. Jesus Christ, how long was that thing on top of her? a couple seconds tops what could do that to a full-grown man in a couple of seconds with that thought the spell over me finally broke i scrambled toward the back of the car weirdly my door was already open and i dove inside before turning and shutting it in a panic i realized the driver's door was open too anna must have bolted during the confusion and kylie must have gone after her i lurched over the console to grab the driver's door and shut it before curling up on the floor. I don't know how long I spent crying and shaking in that back seat. I expected to die at any moment. To hear the sound of breaking glass and to be dragged out into the cold night and consumed like my friends. But it never came. Eventually, I must have fallen asleep. When I opened my eyes, the sun was shining through the car windows. For a moment, I forgot where I was. The memory of last night came back in a rush. I couldn't believe I was still alive. Slowly, I pushed myself into a sitting position and buried my head in my hands. The image of Jake's mangled body and a twisting, dark monster coming unbidden into my mind. I had a sudden urge to throw up. I turned slowly to look out the window, terrified that the creature would still be there. What I saw instead startled me so badly that I hit my head on the ceiling of the car. Kylie was standing at the window. Her face was pressed so close to the glass that her breath was fogging it up. I put my hand to my chest, my nerves settling slightly. Oh my god, Kylie. You scared the piss out of me. Hold on, just a second. My hand reached for the unlock button, fully intending to open the doors and let Kylie in. But I paused, my hand hovering over the button. But something seemed... off. I looked at Kylie again. She was staring in at me with the same expression on her face as before. Her eyes were wide, pupils completely dilated. She hadn't reacted to me waking up. Hadn't said anything. She just stared at me. They reminded me of Anna. Voices from last night came back to me as I began to realize what was going on.
2: Think about it. If it was a trap...
9: Then she's the bait. I let my hand fall away from the button and stared for a moment into Kylie's eyes. She stared back, unblinking. I mouthed, I'm sorry, before climbing into the driver's seat. The jeep still had about a quarter tank left. Kylie didn't even move as I put it in gear. The tires found traction immediately. The impact when the thing hit Jake must have put it out of the rut it was in. I maneuvered around the fallen tree, back onto the highway, and put the pedal all the way to the floor, trying to put as much distance between me and that godforsaken stretch of woods as possible. As I drove, I thought to myself. What the hell am I going to tell the police? That my friends had been eaten by a monster? They would probably assume I murdered them. I realized there was only one thing I could tell the police. That my friends had gone hiking and had never come back. Search parties would descend upon the woods, looking for lost hikers. And eventually they would find one. One who was borderline catatonic. And whoever found Kylie would become one more disappearance in Alabaster State Park. Like my friends. They'd become part of an urban legend. And I would live my entire life knowing the legend was true.
0: joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Michalski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream.